0: Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor, and Bible teacher, Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tabner.
1: In this conversation, we're going to be talking about the book of Numbers. Uh, I suspect there's a clue in the title. Mike, in a sentence, what is the book of Numbers all about? Well, there's a clue, but it's a misleading clue.
0: When our English versions of the Bible were given this title, Numbers, it was based on the fact that, uh, well, the book opens with a census and there's an awful lot of numbers as they're adding up (laughs) the members of the tribes. But in fact, it's far bigger than that. Interestingly, the Hebrew title for this book, Bemidbar, means in the wilderness. And that really sums up what it's about. This is the story of Israel's journey from Mount Sinai towards the Promised Land and the explanation of why it managed to take them a further 38 and a half
1: years to get there. Bearing in mind that you've said in a previous episode that that journey should have only taken, what, a week or so? Yes, if they'd gone the, the sort of the quick rope by
0: the uh, coastal road... It would have taken about 10 days, uh, Max, in in those days, allowing for everybody being with you. So, you know, we've managed to turn a 10-day journey by the quickest route into a 40-year journey. They traveled south to Mount Sinai after the exodus from Egypt, took about three months. They spent about nine months at Mount Sinai before they move on, which is what we'll find in this book. And then the rest of that 40-year period spent wandering around in this wilderness to the south of Israel for reasons that become evident within this story. Just give us a quick overview of the Book of Numbers. I would break it up into three parts, roughly. Chapters 1 to 12 have them getting ready to leave Mount Sinai where they've received that law and commandments from God getting all the details for that and moving on up north to a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is sort of to the south of Israel, Canaan, as it was called then. So that's that journey. Then chapters 13 to 22 cover why there is a delay there and the years spent in the intervening period and their journey then on through one of the nations to the east of the River Jordan, because they'll enter Canaan from that side of the Jordan. And then the third section, chapter 22 to chapter 36, we find them in this nation of Moab to the east of the Jordan River, preparing to enter into the Promised Land. So three broad sections there to this book.
1: You, you mentioned the census. Why, why a census? Why was that necessary? Well, one of the main reasons is they were needing to
0: know how many fighting men that they would have for when they entered the promised land. Although this land had been promised them by God, the inhabitants who were there at the time weren't just going to roll over and say, oh, yeah, sure, welcome, take over our nation. So there would be some fights and some battles ahead. And so they, putting it simply, need to know how many people that they have and it's interesting we get a little insight in numbers chapter 1 we read that the total number of israelite men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army was 603550 so then some younger than that some not able to serve the wives the children that's where we got that number we mentioned when we were looking at the book of exodus to anywhere up to a couple of million people. So it's a a large people group, but a very, very minimum, a million and a quarter, I would have thought.
1: So they need to be counted and they need to be organised.
0: They do need to be organised, which is why the book then goes on to arranging the tribes, the 12 tribes based from those 12 descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob's 12 sons. And they're arranged around the tabernacle in a particular order, each tribe, three on each side, north, south, east, and west. So it's not a case of, you know, I want that bit, I want that bit. No, you belong to this tribe. You will be here. And there is, if you like, a map in in words rather than in pictures in chapter two of how they will be gathered around the tabernacle. Here's the interesting thing though. Moses then goes on, to tell them the order that they will be in when they are marching. And they'll be marching three tribes a- a- abreast. Mm-hmm. So there'll be four rows of three with the tabernacle, of course, has now been dismantled and is being carried by different branches of the Levites at different points in that. But the places that they have when they are on the move are different to the places that they have When they're encamped and it, it, I always think there's like an interesting little window there, you know, there are some things that serve as well for when we're settled, but when we're about to move on and change into something, sometimes we just have to be ready to change position. Churches aren't always very good at doing that. Leaders aren't always very good at doing that. If they've been in a role and, you know, that role doesn't quite fit the next stage, they can be a bit reluctant to let go of it. But here's this great picture of a flexibility to respond to the situation that they're in, whether settling
1: or marching. So in my mind, I'm imagining this enormous number of people traveling together in a particular way Slowly by the sound of it and stopping at various places along the way. And again, there are important, kind of, what rules and regulations and ways of being together that uh, are, are central.
0: Yes. And so, in some of these early chapters, like in chapter five, for example, some really practical laws. I love how practical God is in his word. So, chapter five opens up with maintaining purity in the camp. Health and hygiene, we would say. Isn't that amazing? God cares about things like health and hygiene and is taking proper steps to ensure health and hygiene in the community. So we do get a whole number of rules and regulations, some of them for the community, some for individuals interspersed in this section here of preparation and being ready to move ahead. It includes things like offerings that they'll bring as well, Uh, instructions for a a group of people called the Nazarites, people who would take voluntary vows of dedication to God. But it's all about, come on, let's get get ready. Let's get ready to move on to this next stage and God's incredible practical care for even those little details that will make a difference to a community of people living together.
1: And I guess as we're reading through numbers, it's important to remember that those guidelines were for them in that context. It's easy to try and parachute in those principles to our situations today.
0: Yes, exactly. In fact, these this whole section of the Bible, what we often call the law, is how Jews call it, or Christians have often called it the Pentateuch, the five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These were God's word to Israel for this season that they are in. Now, it's still God's word for us. There are still things we can learn from it, but it's God's word for us rather than God's word to us. So I don't have to take the same instructions about digging pit latrines at the bottom of my garden that we find in numbers. But what I do have to do is to take those principles and apply them for today in a very different cultural context. But this is all about ensuring that Israel can be a holy people as it's moving on to the next stage that God has for them.
1: And they're moving to the so-called promised land, to Canaan, which is an occupied land, as you said. So how do they prepare before going into the occupied land? Well, obviously, one of the things they need to know is,
0: what's this land like? They've never been there, remember? Remember, we'd said previously that hundreds of years had passed since the time of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and their 12 sons. So this is totally new territory to them. So one of the sensible things to do, we find in chapter 13, is to go on a bit of a recce and to see what is there. So in chapter 13, we find Moses selecting one person from each of the tribes to go on a a reconnaissance of the promised land and to come back and to tell them what they found. This is the 12 spies, apparently. That's right. Going out to check things out. The 12 spies go out, they check things out, they come back. And it's interesting because in a sense, what happens is, is a bit of a, a mini picture of this whole period in the wilderness anyway. There's there's the good and there's the not so good. So they come back with a report in chapter 13 saying, yeah, we've we've been to the land. It does flow with milk and honey. They were talking metaphorically, obviously. Milk and honey were two very precious things in those days. And here's its fruit. They brought back this most enormous branch full of grapes. Interesting, that's still one of the, emblems that is used in Israel today of it as a nation and they come back they say yeah it's great this land that God has promised us is fantastic but (laughs) but the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and they're very large we even saw descendants of Anak there these were very tall people so there's a sudden but and there's this guy called Caleb who silences the people and says, oh, for goodness sake, come on, the Lord's with us. We can do this. And then the people say, well, we're not sure we can really, you know, all these reasons. And they start to spread rumours and reports among the people. This is going to be too hard. We can't do this. Maybe we should go back. And by the time we've got to chapter 14, we found that that night, all the people raised their voices and wept aloud. And the Israelites start grumbling against Moses and Aaron and saying, oh, if only we died in Egypt, you know, I think we'd be going back there. What have we come all here for? Again, this short memory of
1: people that we've seen. And this is the promised land, the land that God had promised them. And they're now saying, hmm, looks like God's got it wrong. I suppose if you put
0: it into our terms, you know, sometimes we may feel that God has spoken to us as individuals or as a a community, as a church community. And we feel that God's given us a promise through a word of prophecy or scripture. And we think, yeah, that's right. We're going for it. And at first it looks good. Then something goes wrong. And at that point, either we think, well, God spoke, we can push through this. Or we think, yeah, well, maybe we misheard, you know, maybe this wasn't what God wanted. And I think that's what's going on here. And it's only because of two people, Caleb, whom we've already mentioned, and Joshua, who will become important in the next part of the story, that Joshua and Caleb are able to silence people and say, come on, we can do this, though it's not before the whole has talked about stoning them for talking like this. But eventually, they are able to win. But as because of that, God says, do you know what? You lot are that miserable and that faithless and that unbelieving that every one of you aged above 20, in other words, adults who can take responsibility for their decisions, not one of you is going to enter the promised land apart from the two people who said we can do this. God has spoken and who responded with faith. And that was Joshua and Caleb. They would be the only two people aged over 20 who would enter the promised land. And God said, the rest of you, what will happen to you is what you feared would happen. You said, Oh, we're going to die here in the desert. And God said, yeah, you're going to die here in the desert. And what they spoke out came back upon them.
1: And bearing in mind that you'd said at the beginning, when that census was taken, the number of young men, 20 years and older, that's a lot of people. It is an awful lot of people. And of
0: course, over this time that they're in the desert, they're going to be in the desert now for another 38 years for that generation to die out. So youngsters would grow up, they would marry, they would have children in their place and so on. But we are talking about a lot of people. And, and this is this is not God being nasty. This is God saying, sometimes you get what you wish for in life. And they just simply were not trusting the promise of God it wasn't just to Moses and to them, but it went all the way back to Abraham, repeated to Isaac and to Jacob and passed down. And it's that word, but listen, always be careful of the word, but in life, it's a short word, but a powerful word. This is a great land. There are good things, but we see some problems. Well, tell me anything in life that doesn't come without problems. But if God has spoken, Joshua and Caleb said, if God has spoken, we're not going to bury our heads and pretend there aren't any buts. But if God has
1: spoken, we can surely deal with the buts as we come to them. You've mentioned just then Joshua and Caleb, but what about Moses and his brother Aaron that we were hearing about in certainly a previous episode? Where, where are they? Well, um, they are
0: still around there is a story in chapter 12 where Miriam and Aaron actually stand against Moses for a little while. Remember their family <laughs> <laughs> and there's nothing like the youngest in the family, which Moses was, you know, perhaps the older ones feeling he's getting a bit above himself. And uh, in chapter 12, we find an example there where they start saying, well, you know, Moses is giving us all these commands. Is he the only one that God has spoken through? And the answer was, no, of course he's not, but he's the one whom God has chosen and some measure of judgment comes on them there. But they will not actually make it to the promised land because let's take Moses because he's the leading figure. Here's Moses who has been So faithful to God all the way through. He's not been perfect. He's had his moments when he smashed the stones of the Ten Commandments and things like that when he got angry with people. But he has been a good leader. But there is a time towards the end of this story when Moses gets really angry with God's people. They come and they ask him, for water this and we've got no water again we've got no water again and there is Moses thinking oh for goodness sake you know how many times do I have to show you what God can do so this is in chapter 20 of numbers and Moses no doubt remembered that when they'd not been able to find water previously God had said to him strike the rock with your rod but this time God had said to him don't strike the rock it said speak to the rock But Moses, you see, is so mad with the people that he doesn't hear the difference. Strike the rock, speak to the rock. And what he does is he strikes the rock, but he strikes it in anger. And reading between the lines, I sort of hear him say, you want water? Thwack, here's blessed water for you. Thwacking, and it's in anger. And God suddenly picks him up and says, Moses, Moses, whoa, 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 whoa. I cannot have an angry leader leading my people. And because of that, you won't enter the promised land. You'll see it. I'll let you see it with your eyes. But you're never going to set foot in it. By the way, let's just say a word in passing there to any leaders just listening at this point. Your anger doesn't achieve anything. Of God's purpose. Man's anger does not fulfill God's righteous purpose, one of the Proverbs says. And God can't have angry leaders. God can't have bullying leaders. God can't have leaders who take it out on things or people. And this is quite a story. I mean,
1: oh, you think, poor old Moses, after all he'd done. Yeah, I mean, this is the person that God had chosen. It seems disproportionate for him not to actually enter the promised land For something as trivial? Trivial. That's the word I
0: knew we were going to come out with. And that's the word I think most of us would use, wouldn't it? But I think what it reflects is the preciousness with which God holds his people. You know, even today for pastors, priests, leaders, elders, youth leaders, whatever you might be, home group leader, if if you've got a responsibility looking after a number of people, they're not your people. They're God's people. And God counts them as precious and they are not yours to push around, manipulate, get to do what you want, get cross with if they don't do what you want immediately in the way that you want it doing. What it brings home is this is first and foremost about the people of God not about Moses. It is about that promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of a family that would not just fill Canaan, but would one day fill the whole earth. And God says, Moses, I can't have leaders like that. And while it might seem trivial underlying it, it exposed at that moment, Moses's heart towards the people. He was frustrated with them. Man, I can understand why. I mean, after all these years and the years that were still be to come, you can perhaps understand it, but it reflects God's precious care for his people and that they are led well.
1: So that's a clear warning shot, if you like, across the bows for Moses and everybody else, but the people still haven't entered the promised land.
0: No. So from chapter 20, verse 14 now, which is the story that picks up just after that story of Uh, Moses striking the rock. We get the journey from this place, Kadesh Barnea, in the wilderness and their long wanderings to uh, the plains to the east of the Dead Sea and the south of the River Jordan. And that is going to take them through two nations, actually, through Edom, first of all, who deny them passage. uh, And so they have to skirt around them to the east and then to Moab that really stands in the way and is absolutely going to resist the passage of this people through their land, even though they they just want to pass through. And so from sort of chapters 21, 22 onwards, we get stories about Moab resisting Israel. It happens in a number of ways. The king of Moab, a guy called Balak, hires a pagan prophet called Balak, Balaam, and says, I want you to come and I want you to prophesy over these people and curse them so that they won't be able to be blessed and pass through my land. And this (laughs) pagan prophet, Balaam, who's been paid good money to pronounce a jolly good curse over these Israelites, Mm -hmm. opens his mouth. And every time he opens his mouth, God takes over and he brings out not curse, but blessing. And Balak keeps saying, "Eh, I'm paying you money to curse them, not to bless them. And he's saying, I can't do anything else. It's the living God who's doing this. Interesting how God intervenes there. Uh, The second way they're trying to be opposed is through some of the women in Moab actually seeking to seduce the men from Israel in in chapter 25 and uh, to say, you know, putting it bluntly, come to bed with me, honey. And, in doing that to lure them away, of course, from their people and their gods to their false gods. So there's there's quite a, a struggle here to stop these people getting through to the land that God has promised them. But as we read this story, what you'll see is that no matter what comes against them, nothing can stop them getting to the place that God has called them to be. What an encouragement for us today! By the way, if God has promised us something. Doesn't matter what happens, what is said, what is done against us. Nothing can stop us getting to the place where God wants us to be.
1: So, both sort of internal struggles as well as external struggles. By the sound of it, absolutely. And you mentioned that Moses won't enter the promised land. So, who's who's going to have that responsibility? Who's going to sort of take over? He
0: is going to pass that on to the man who he's been training for this whole period, ever since they came out of Egypt, Uh, the man called Joshua, who will end up with a Bible book named after him. And one of the 12 spies. And one of the 12 spies. So a guy who'd already proved himself. One of the other ways we find him proving himself in the wilderness is that he hung around Moses the Bible tells us that he Moses appointed Joshua as his assistant. That's the only word it uses, his assistant. But he he sticks to Moses like a fly stick into fly paper. You know, he's <laughs> wherever Moses goes, he's there. And he sticks at the tabernacle. He just loves being at the tabernacle. Why? The tabernacle represents the presence of God. And there were times even when Moses would leave the tabernacle to withdraw, presumably to go and deal with some issues or even take a nap. And we find Joshua still there at the tabernacle, loving the presence of God. And this is the man that in our terms today, God directed Moses to mentor, to take his place. So there's no sort of family succession. There's no hereditary kingship or anything like that. He's the man that God has appointed And that Moses has spent time mentoring. And by the way, that's just worth pausing and stopping and saying to anybody in any leadership position, whether it's in the church or in the secular sphere, there is nothing like mentoring people. To have people who can not simply carry on the show when you've gone, but who, like Joseph, will take the show further, just like Joshua did. And that's always been one of the personal passions of my own life to mentor young people who will be able to go further than I did, just like Joshua would actually end up going further than Moses. Because while Moses was key in receiving the law and getting people through the wilderness, it would be Joshua who would have the privilege of entering the promised land and leading God's people into it. What actually happens To Moses, oh, I can't tell you yet because we can't cover that till we get to the next book, the book of Deuteronomy. But watch this space.
1: Okay. Well, before that, you've already painted a picture of a generation dying out before they enter the promised land. So this is a whole new bunch of people who are having to learn from scratch what it means, presumably, to, to be that people.
0: Yes, though remember what they have to guide them as that people is what God has given them at Mount Sinai. He's given them the gift of the law, the 10 commandments, the 10 words, 10 wise words for living, unpacked in the laws that follows, applied for life in the desert and in the book of Deuteronomy that we'll come to in another episode, then applied for life when they go into the promised land. So they have got their guidebook for how to live as this new people. They've got the tabernacle and the presence of God and the sacrificial system for when things go wrong and they need to reestablish relationship with God. So in many ways, a new beginning with a new generation, but the same God and the same guidelines to lead them as they move ahead in his purposes.
1: And you explained at the beginning, to some extent, why the book is called Numbers. There's a census at the beginning, counting all the people, and another census towards the end of the book. Yes, that's
0: right. There's a a second census in Chapter 26. And I think it was because of those two censuses. And, you know, frankly, when you get to those bits, those are the bits that, let's face it, all of us skim read because there are some very long and complicated names And adding up how many people are there. But do remember at the time, this would have been tremendously important. These are people who are about to enter the promised land. It's really important, you know, who is part of your clan, who is part of your tribe, which people are going to have which area. And so these lists, while to us, frankly, oh, dare I say it about God's word, a little bit boring, (laughs) were really, really important for the people at the time. And also for things like claiming their inheritance not being able to prove that they were part of a certain tribe or clan or family. So yes, yeah, so we get these two censuses, one at the beginning, one at the end of the book. and as we said earlier, that's why the book became known in our tradition by numbers because there are an awful lot of numbers. But as we said, in the desert, the Hebrew title is a much more appropriate title
1: for this book really. Why would you say you would recommend somebody to read the book of Numbers? For me, I think one of the things that stands
0: out in the book of Numbers is the absolute faithfulness of God. Because the question we are left with is that after all that we see in this book, after we see how they turn against God, grumble, after they want to stone Joshua and and Caleb for their encouraging reports, you know, Surely you feel like God would say, oh, for goodness sake, let's send another flood and start again. It would be a lot easier. But the message comes out that God will not give up on his people. He is a faithful God. He made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and he is going to bring that about. So we see the faithfulness of God coming out again, not just for individuals, but for a people. That people who are descended from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that people who Balaam, the false prophet, could only bless and not curse. Why? Because that's what God had done. Seven prophetic words come out of his mouth and they're all to do with blessing.
1: So actually, Numbers has got a lot to say about the words from our mouths and how that relates to the way we live our lives. Yes,
0: because that's one of the other things I think comes out in the book as well. It's very much a book about living together as God's people. You know, we didn't touch on it. There's a lot of stories and laws within this book about how to live together as God's people on a journey. And today we're still on a journey as God's people. And we need to listen to God to learn how to journey well on that journey together How to trust the faithfulness of God, especially when things get tough or don't look like they're working out. And how to relate well to the leaders that God has given us. So for me, Numbers is a book that's still got so much to teach us today. And this book is so exciting about what God is like and what he's calling his people to. Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB,
1: check out the website at ucb.co.uk.